Good evening. We still have some beer acquisition going on back here, but we are going to get started with the first Golden Beer Talks of 2018. Yay! I've gotten these mics a little close together, but we'll, we'll rectify this situation here shortly. Ha <laughs> get it? What I did there? Shortly? Just check in. Got to keep up. It's January, people. Fresh new start. <laughs> Charlie. Yes. First, I want to start with some gratitudes for our friends here at the Windy Saddle for always taking such good care of us. To, uh, to goldentoday.com for promoting our events and holding up the backbone of our community. Check out their website, goldentoday.com. They're awesome. To Greg Reed, local musician, for lending us this amazing sound equipment. We have a new adventure for Beer Talks tonight. We uh, have a guest tap for the beer. You might have noticed. So as you know, Frank is, is kind of the center of our diplomatic mission as our beer ambassador. When he is unable to be present, his deputy chief of mission, his wife Barb, steps in. And we're kind of, we're kind of filling out the ranks here. Now we've got Jim Clausen over here. He's our foreign envoy. And he's brought in this foreign beer for us to try tonight. He's going to come up and talk about it a little bit and tell a little bit of the story. Let's bring him up here. Jim Clausen, foreign envoy. So if, if uh, folks have been with us for the last five years, you know we rotate our beers among the, uh, the breweries in town. And, um, and we didn't want to wear all these guys out providing our beer all the time. So I uh, had a suggestion a few months ago that maybe every other month or, or a few times a year that we uh, head out to the regional area and see if we uh, can't invite some of our um, breweries from the, the region in and uh, mix it up a little bit. So this is the first time we're doing that. Um, the brewery we went to this time is Ricoli's. It's a little tiny brewery over on Wadsworth in 44th. I don't know if folks have been over there, but it's a great little place. Excellent. Um, they've been open for about five years. Um, in the past, he was a former GCB brewer. It's in the 2005 time frame. Um, and so he has a very small system over there, about a three-barrel system, uh, but he brews all the time, and he's got about 15 beers on tap. Um, and uh, Whitney and I went over there and, and tried a few of them this afternoon <laughs> to select. Um, it's, it's terrible, I, I tell you. Um, you know, just taking one for the team. I, I hope everybody's appreciating that. Um, so we uh, decided to go with three beers tonight. We had a, a kind of a, um, a premonition uh, based on our Facebook activity that there would be a lot of people here tonight. So thanks, everybody, for, uh, for coming. So uh, we ended up getting a little bit more beer, and we got three of them. So um, I'll go with the first one is a Mango Session IPA. Um, and so as a session, it has a little less alcohol. Um, you can drink more of it in a longer session, and, and uh, uh, hence, hence the name. Um, it's got uh, a similar mouthfeel to a normal IPA, but has that less alcohol so that you can enjoy it a little bit longer. It's a 5% uh, ABV with um, uh, 65 uh, IBU uh, bittering units. 
Um, it's, it's described with a, a biscuit malt with a bold citrus flavor. Um, so those of you that have had it, uh, hopefully that uh, describes that. We thought it was a, a nice, very, very drinkable, very agreeable beer. Even people who uh, aren't um, IPA lovers would probably be okay with this beer. Uh, the second one is the Vanilla Inyo Rye. So this one is uh, uh, vanilla uh, porter, uh, 6.8% ABV with 45 IBU. Uh, it's got the, well, actually, it's a, it's a healthy, warm American oatmeal stout, I guess, is more the, the description uh, in the beer type uh, that he has on here. So it's got a natural vanilla that he puts in there, uh, and combines that with the roasted flavors with the, the rye and, and the roasted malts. Um, and so we thought that one was a, a quite a tasty uh, beer and appropriate for uh, January, even though it's not that cold out. So <laughs> I tell you, this global warming is cutting into our enjoying of the dark beers. I, it's, if that doesn't turn people around, I don't know what will. Uh, the last one I have on the list is called the Static. And uh, this one is um, an American barley wine at 13% ABV and 107 IBU. So this is full-on, triple IPA, um, you know, kind of um, hits you on the palate in several different ways. Uh, we're only doing the 9-ounce pour tonight uh, as, as with a 13%. You can imagine why. Um, so this is, has the bold citrus and fruit in the flavor. Um, it's... It, it, uh, in the description uh, that they gave us, uh, reeks of pungent hops with a clean finish, um, and and that kind of describes it. It's it's pretty powerful, but it's it's pretty tasty and and well balanced. Uh, we thought. So those are our beers for tonight, and uh, we hope you enjoy them. And um, we'll uh, let us know if uh, you enjoy the the regional uh, beers and give us any feedback. And uh, if you've got any other suggestions for some other breweries uh, on our off. Uh, uh, months, then um, certainly let us know and we'll check them out and see if we uh, can't get them to uh, participate. All right. Thank you. All right. So thank you all for coming. This is, a, again, a gratifying turnout for Golden Beer Talks, and we're in our fifth year. And uh, tonight we have Rex Rideout, who's going to be talking and performing for us. And Rex uh, recreates and uh, documented 19th and early 20th century music. And he's worked with interpreters, historic sites, humanities councils, museums, and theaters in the presentation of the life of the first cowboys. Rex is able to play just about any stringed instrument, and he has a number of them here. But he's also mastered the skills of traditional wood and metalworking. He was involved with the restoration of the cabins at the Clear Creek History Park, where he hewed some of the logs with a broad axe. So how many people can do that, I ask you? Can you, Charlie? I did one. All right. Very good. He has performed at countless historic sites and museums across the West. His music has also been featured and in television and in the movie Cowboys and Aliens. Do you guys, any, anyone see that movie? It, it, it's actually a pretty good movie. And it's got Harrison Ford in it, and Rex is the, uh, uh, the player in the bar. So he's a music player in the bar. He's, 
And um, he also serves on the board of the Colorado Cowboy Gathering. And the Colorado Cowboy Gathering, I, I also serve on the board, so we're both on the board of the Colorado Cowboy Gathering. <laughs> All right, yes. And we have the Colorado Cowboy Gathering coming to town Friday through Sunday, the 19th through the 21st. So, you know, 10 days from now, 11 days from now, uh, just a week from now, over at the American Mountaineering Center. And Rex is a frequent performer. He's performing for some of the school shows. We have a, a program where a number of our performers go to the different schools to, you know, to try to get the word out about the Colorado Cowboy Gathering. And we're playing old-time music there. It's, it's music, it's storytelling, and it's poetry. And so I encourage you to come. Rex is a frequent performer there. And with that, I'll let Rex come up and talk to you guys about music history and perform a few songs for us. It was all lies. I do want to say I'm digging the barley wine. It's good. Now, when I was asked to come here, I like to put together a presentation that's specific to the, the location and what's interesting and what's happening around there and what's, you know, what's significant like the uh, second largest brewery in Golden, that sort of thing. <laughs> but then I looked at the date, and it was January 9. Okay, it's, it's the day before. January 8th, not ringing any bells, 8th of January, there was Old Hickory, General Jackson. He had his troops out in New Orleans, and they, they met with the British, and the greatest fiddle tune, fiddle tune of all time was inspired by that battle. It's called 8th of January, so got to do it. <laughs> January, that was the tune that was inspired by the battle. And then there was a uh, there was a school teacher named Jimmy Driftwood, and he would come up with songs to help his students learn history. And so he put it to he put that melody to some words that he invented himself, which was called the Battle of New Orleans. In 1814, we took a little trip. Along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi We took a little bacon and we took a little beans And we fought the bloody British in the town of New Orleans We fired our guns and the British kept a coming Wasn't as many as it was a while ago 
Fire once more and they began to run Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico Oh, Hickory said we'd take him by surprise If we wouldn't fire muskets till we looked him in our eyes We held our fire till we seen the faces well And loaded up our squirrel guns and really gave him well We fired our guns and the British kept a coming Wasn't as many as it was a while ago Fire once more and they began to run Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico Well, they ran through the briars and they ran through the brambles And they ran through the bushes where a rabbit wouldn't go Ran so fast that the hounds wouldn't catch them Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. So that was the Battle of New Orleans. And uh, there was another there was another tune that was inspired by that conflict. By the way, I, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. I, I bring instruments that are from the time periods that I represent. And so this is a Lion and Healy banjo that was made in 1885. Lion and Healy, you may know of them. Today they are known for making the pedal harps for the orchestras. But at the turn of the 19th century, they made banjos, guitars, mandolins. And if you, uh, this one was made in 1885, but they kept making this model. So if you look at a 1900 Sears and Roebuck catalog, You'll see this very banjo in there for sale for $4. And I'll be putting all these up for auction at the end of the show. So that banjo is sort of a youngster. This fiddle is, this was made around 1800. And the fun thing about it is that I played this for the bicentennial celebrations for the Lewis and Clark Expedition and the Pike Expedition and the bicentennial observations of the War of 1812 because it was around and making music at the time. And so that's it's pretty cool. This one was made in Italy. There isn't much we've been able to find out, but I've taken this to luthiers that know instruments, and they could tell me it was made in Italy and was made around 1800 and uh, that's about all we know. But it's a sweetie. And you may notice that I play it in a way that most people don't today. At the time of Thomas Jefferson, and he did play the violin very well, at the time of Jefferson, most folks played their fiddle down on the arm. Oh, yeah, fiddle. Fiddle. The English called it the fiddle, the Italians called it the violin, they were playing the same music. When it came over to this country, then fiddle came to mean something different. Playing traditional tunes, very much on the open strings, and playing double stops, triple stops, that's the difference between fiddling and 
playing the violin. But the, uh, the, uh, the, the conflict at the Battle of New Orleans inspired another tune. And it ended up being the campaign song for Andrew Jackson for the Senate in 1828. And then, I guess that worked pretty good because then it worked for the presidency. Fair that graces famous city Come listen if you've time to spare While I rehearse a ditty For the opportunity Conceive yourselves quite lucky For tis not often that you see A hunter of Kentucky Oh, Kentucky The hunters of Kentucky Oh, Kentucky The hunters of Kentucky I suppose you read it in the prints how Packenham attempted to make old Hickory Jackson wince, but soon his scheme repented, for we with rifles cocked found such occasion lucky, and soon around the general flocked the hunters of Kentucky, oh Kentucky, the hunters of Kentucky, oh Kentucky, the hunters of Kentucky. But Jackson, he was wide awake and was not scared of trifles, for well he knew what aim we'd take with our Kentucky rifles. He led us down the cypress swamp, the ground was low and mucky, there stood John Bull and Marshall Pomp, and here was old Kentucky, oh Kentucky, the hunters of Kentucky, oh Kentucky, the hunters of Kentucky. saw that it was vain to fight when lead was all their booty and so they wisely took to flight and left us all our beauty and so if danger air and noise remember what our trade is just call on us kentucky boys and we'll protect ye ladies oh kentucky the hunters of kentucky oh kentucky the hunters of kentucky of Kentucky. Now maybe some of you heard that or heard of the existence of that tune but never heard it sung. But that was the state song of Kentucky for a long time until that young upstart Stephen Foster came up with that song, My Old Kentucky Home, and then they changed official state songs. 
Now, this is a uh, this is a town that is somewhat built on the uh, object of your affections. Beer. <laughs> Coors Brewery started here. What was that? Uh, 1873. Same time the, the Colorado School of Mines started here. Any Mines alumni, by the way? I know the fight song, every verse, even the ones about Boulder. <laughs> well, I, I feel like I have to sing something regarding Bia. And there is a there is a song that was, it's a jingle. And it was uh, wasn't written in the in the sense of being a professional jingle for this particular beer, but it was just done as appreciation because this fellow was on a ship and his brother sent him a barrel of this ale, and he was so grateful. <laughs> he composed this song that has come down through the ages, you know, from the 1700s. If you've heard it before, sing along. Nottingham Ale, boys, Nottingham Ale, no liquor on earth is like 
Has anyone heard that before? That's one you should all know. You should be all singing that. And in some places, when I leave that to later in the evening, then everybody's singing it with me. It looks like a banjo. It's round. Got that funny little peg halfway up the neck. Must be a banjo. But it's a, it's a little bit earlier. This one is, uh, this represents the uh, time b- before the Civil War, end of the fur trade. These start to show up in the late 1840s. This is a, this is a model that would have been made by uh, William Boucher, or Boucher, out of New York. New York City, yes. Banjos out of New York City. Think, think of that. Well, it's it's a little bit different uh, in that there are no frets on the on the fingerboard. It's just smooth frets like on a fiddle. But they are getting a little bit more sophisticated. The original banjos show up in the late 1700s, mid to late 1700s, on the uh, plantations. People like to say. The banjo is the only American instrument. Everything comes from somewhere. The banjo was developed by the slaves based on instruments that they had in Africa, particularly in Mali. That doesn't mean they brought them on those ships when they were crammed into the holds. No, they didn't bring anything. But once they were able to restore their, some of their culture, they would recreate these instruments that they had in Africa and they would make them with a gourd, a calabash gourd. Stretch skin over that, put a neck on that, and two or three strings on the fretboard, and always that little drone. It's like the drone of the bagpipes. In the 19th century, it was called the chanterelle, but it's just the drone string. And you may have noticed that I play the instrument a little bit differently than today. I don't play in the style of Earl Scruggs or Snuffy Jenkins, even though I do sometimes. But what I'm representing of what was known in the 19th century as the stroke style. Today we would call it the frailing or the uh, claw hammer style. So there's a little history lesson on the banjo. And uh, this next piece I'm going to play has to do quite a bit with this, what brought people to this area. Yes. It was first found out in California. Seems even before the final treaties and the end of the U.S.-Mexican War, before the ink was dry, or even before it was signed, gold was found out in California where the Spanish had been hunting for hundreds of years. It's unbelievable how history works sometimes. But there was a great rush and there were all these people running out to California to seek their fortune, and they were known as 49ers. Well, it was late in the year 1858 that gold was found in Cherry Creek, and then up in Cripple Creek, and up in Georgetown. And then the following year, there was a big rush to get to this area, and those prospectors were known as 59ers. Well, there was a, late in the 1858, there was a big celebration 
and the founding of Denver City. And there were some far-seeing people that said, we're going to make a killing. And they platted out the city, the town, as it were, on Cherry Creek, and Denver was founded. And there was a fiddler who came from the gold camps of California, only known now as Jones the Fiddler, but he played this, this song that was, was in the song. It was, it was played in the gold fields of California and it ended up being in, the, in the, what's known as Old Putts, California Songster. It was a little, little songbook. It was published in 1851. And I don't have to tell you what it is. Cowboy Gathering has been going on for 25, 27 years. How the time flies. (laughs) Yes. It's been, uh, in recent years, we've found our home here in Golden, and what a good fit it is. Howdy, folks, where the West begins. Here we are, and 
uh, we are happy to be here in Golden. And the American Mountaineering Center is a real good fit. And so I hope you can come and see us. It'll be the 19th, 20th, 21st, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And you look on the Colorado Cowboy Gathering on the website or just do a search for CCG Golden Colorado. You'll find it right with that. But I hope you can come. Well, I was talking about talking about something you find in the ground. Some gold, gold! yeah, that, that mineral. Yeah. We've got some uh, geology people here. There was a there's a cowboy song that was written by Brewster Higley as a poem in 1871, and then his friend Dan Kelly put it to music on the guitar in 1873, and then it went out just went out into the ether and a popular song can spread and it goes around and is played and sung and beloved across the country and then people start to put their own words to it their you know their own place names and so forth and the year is 1885 there's a there's a camp they, it's a it's a shack that's up in Leadville. Well, not really in Leadville. It was in Oro City, the mining town just south of Leadville. And there was uh, Bob Swartz, Bill McCabe, another fellow named Jim. And they were in this place they called the Junk Lane Hotel. And they, uh, they'd be working out in the camps, out in the fields, but when they weren't working, they'd be back there in their in, in their shack, and they it was uh, McCabe played the banjo, and they would come up with songs, and they would just kind of you know pass the time away by playing these songs, and they insist that this one was entirely invented, melody and words by them, but when you hear the beginnings, you can tell no, that's home on the range, <laughs> no doubt, but they uh, they put their own place names and words to it. And it's, it's fun because people don't realize that Colorado has their own version of Home on the Range. And it was, it's, whenever I'm in Leadville, it's, it's a big hit. It's called Colorado Home. Incidentally, the original title for the poem by Brewster Higley was Western Home. In fact, it isn't until, okay... You're going to get the rest of the story. <laughs> it isn't until John Lomax is doing research, he's doing last-minute research on a book that he's going to publish, which is called Cowboy Songs and Other Frontier Ballads that he'll publish in 1910. And he is out in the uh, rail yards of San Antonio, and he's trying to find you know, just anything to you know, add some more things to his book. And he's got a... Uh, it's runs on a crank, and you know he could record people, and it, you know it's enormous. And he, he comes around, and he's asking people for the, for these songs, and they they tell him, well, you know, there's a fellow down here. He's got he runs a, a saloon down here, and he used to be a camp cook out on the range, and he knows all these songs. So he went to see him, and he found him sitting underneath this tree in the shade, and he says, I was drunk. I was drunk. You come back tomorrow. I'll sing for you. So he loads up his 
recording equipment, you know, and the discs and all the horns and the cranks. And he comes back the next day, and the fellow was as good as his word. And he sang over a dozen of the old cowboy songs that Lomax had never heard before. But among them was the home on the range that we know today. And if it wasn't for Lomax finding it, we wouldn't know that song. But it's there. It's only in that newer version where it's home on the range. That phrase doesn't appear in any of the other versions. It's this uh, folk process. But back to Colorado Home, 1885. You won't hear home on the range. And the, uh, the thing that's interesting is Brewster Higley, he was an educated man. He was a, he was a physician, and he would say, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope play. Well, Brewster, well, uh, Swartz, Bob Swartz and his friends, they didn't really get all that plurality of animals too well, so you'll, you'll catch that. Colorado Home. Oh, give me a home where the buffaloes roam, where the deer and the antelopes play, where seldom is heard a discouraging word, and the sky is not cloudy all day. Oh, give me the gleam of the swift mountain stream and the place where no hurricanes blow. Oh, give me the park where the prairie dogs bark and the mountains all covered with snow. so many stories, but you'll just have to get that another time because I'm trying to cram it all into one short little bit for you.
you may have noticed, I didn't bring a guitar. I don't know what I was thinking. But in the, uh, in the early cowboy camps, there was uh, Jack Thorpe. He was a collector of the cowboy songs. He was a real cowboy. In 1889, he was hearing these songs that he never heard anywhere else. And he was thinking, if I don't do something, they're going to disappear. And so he started collecting these songs that we hear, he would hear in these camps. And he published the first book of cowboy songs two years before John Lomax in 1908 in Estancia, New Mexico. So he gets the credit for the first published book of cowboy songs. Well, he would say that in the cow camps, you might find a fiddle, maybe a banjo. You would not find the guy riding down the trail with the D-45 Martin strapped to his back. No, the guitar doesn't show up for a while. If you think about it, it's not really, it's not an environment that's good for guitars. It's not really good for fiddles either. Banjos doesn't matter. <laughs> but it's, it's not until about the turn of the 19th century when they start to have line shacks and better shelter for these cowboys that the guitars start to show up. And then they're playing these guitars. Before that, it's all banjos and fiddles. But I, I brought something. This is a guitar banjo. And as I promised, this is going to be an instrument that no one has seen me play in public before. And I, I told Frank that was going to be the case. This one is made by the, uh, this is made by the Washburn Company out of Chicago. Now, some of you know Washburn guitars are pretty big medicine. Well, they also made banjos and mandolins. So this was made around 1920, and so they put a guitar neck on a banjo. The, the rim's somewhat larger than the regular banjo. And uh, the, the best ad advantage is you don't have to worry about your nice buckle scratching the back of your guitar. <laughs> There's no back. Well, there was a, it was a, there was an adventurer. It was in the spring of 1884. His name was uh, Thomas Stevens, and he uh, had it in his head that he was going to take his Columbia high wheel bicycle and ride it around the world, and he did. Okay, okay. Anybody know about his his uh, his. Uh, Relative Steve Stevens here in town? Yes. You've been to his wonderful museum yes. and zero carbon footprint home? Yes. I've had the pleasure of going over there and playing. And actually, Steve, he's, he's quite an adventurer himself. It was on the, uh, the bicentennial of the Zebulon Pike expedition. Within two or three days that he joined me in climbing Pike's Peak. And that's around Thanksgiving, and it was rough. <laughs> but we did that. Well, he, he, took, he took it upon himself to do his own adventure when he attempted to ride his own Columbia high-wheel bicycle around the world. And he got across the U.S., and then he got through Europe, and then he got into some trouble in Bosnia. And that was the end of his route. Thomas Stevens, got, he, he managed to get all the way through, but he started in uh, San Francisco and rode across the U.S., and then he uh, was in Boston, 
took a steamer to Liverpool, rode his bicycle through Europe, and got through, um, got through there pretty well until he got to Afghanistan. At the time, they were at war with Russia, and they were, they were completely convinced he was a Russian spy. They wouldn't let him in. So he had to turn around and go back through Persia and Iran, where he had done personal demonstrations of the bicycle for the Shah and the Sultan. And people just, he, it was like he came from outer space. There was riding this thing that is just these skinny wheels, you know, in this little frame, and it doesn't stand up on its own, yet it stays up when you ride it. Well, he went, went on through, and he went around the coast of India, and he got up along the coast of China to Japan, and then he took a steamer back to, back to uh, San Francisco in December of 1886. Two and a half years. Not bad. Then he published his book in 1888. It's in, or at least should be, and it usually is in every library. You, you want to look, he's an engaging writer. He was not trained to be a writer, but he was, he was a gifted writer as well as an adventurer. It's very simply titled, Around the World on a Bicycle, Thomas Stevens. Look it up. He's a good writer. Okay, when he's going across this part of the country on this contraption, it inspired some songs and poems, and this is one of them. Imagine, these guys are, you know, they're on, you know, they're riding horses, you know, and here comes this thing down the trail. It's got a wheel like this, and it's got a little wheel like this, and it's got the saddle. He calls it a saddle. It wouldn't hold a small dog, and he calls it a saddle. And so he inspired a few, uh, few uh, songs and poems. And this one shows up in Jack Thorpe's book, in Lomax's book, in Charlie Seringo's book. By the way, did anybody see the latest Westward where there was an excellent article about Charlie Seringo? Pretty good work for these guys. They, they were delving into their history and they're doing, a, doing I was, I found it to be impressive work. You should look it up. About Charlie Seringo, he has connections here in Denver. But he also, he, he uh, 15 years on the hurricane deck of a Spanish pony, that's his most famous book. But he also put together a little songbook, a songster. And it has this song in it. And then there's uh, Dane Coolidge. He was the uncle of Calvin Coolidge. He would go around into Arizona and New Mexico, and he was writing stories, excellent stories. Batwing Bowls is one of his, one of his works. And um, he also writes New Mexico Cowboys, Arizona Cowboys, Old California Cowboys. These are all... These are all nonfiction. He's just writing about what he sees. But he also is collecting the songs. So all these guys have these pieces of these songs, but they weren't complete because the cowboys don't remember all the words. And so I assembled it as best I could and made a coherent song, only to find out that there was a writer in the Denver Evening Post in 1897. And James... Batten Adams. He was a regular writer, and he's the author. And there it was, the whole thing in print on the front page of the Denver Evening Post, and all my research went. <laughs> but now you get the, the whole song. It's called the, he called it the Cowboy in the Wheel. It's more popularly known today as the Goldarn Wheel.
I can take the wildest bronc from the wild and woolly west. I can rope him, I can ride him, let him do his level best. I can handle it, a clear to let war, a coat of hair, and have a lively tussle with a tarnal grizzly bear. I can take the wildest bronco with the wildest western spin And any disagreements I can play a winning hand But at last I met my master and I surely had to squeal When the boys got me a straddle of the gold iron wheel It was at the Eagle Rancho on the browsers Where I first come across a dime contrivance that upset me in the dust And naturally up the throat they stood me on my cursed head Tramped my face and lightning in order so the foreman said was of tenderfoot that brung it, he come wheeling away From his home of freedom out to San Francisco Bay He tied up at the ranch to get outside of a meal Never thinking that his cowboys would monkey with the wheel Said Arizona Jim McGinty, all the same as Jack McGill His man forced a limit riding on his bragging skills Said as how there was a puncher not a million miles away He thought himself a rider while he's tolerable gay and there came the admission, the same fellow as he meant Was a mighty handy critter as far as horses went But he found he was a buck against a different sort of deal If he popped his leather leggings across the gold iron wheel Such a slur upon my talent made me hotter than a mink I told him I would ride it for amusement or for chink Why, it's nothing but a plaything for the kids and such about They'd have the rival shattered if they trot the critter out the greatest kind of slope from the rancher to the creek And we went to Galapalocking like a crazy lightning streak With the whizzing and the buzzing first of this and then for that Contrivance sort of wobbled like the flying of a bat Then the boys began to howl Stay with her Uncle Bill Stop to steal to her you sucker Turn your muzzle up the hill I didn't say a word I didn't look around My eyes were kept busy looking for the smoothest ground Then the ground come up and hit me and the stars were tangled up the last thing I remembered was the punches picked me up. They took me to the ranch and laid me out across a bed. And cowboys gathered around me because they knowed that I was dead. And the doctor was a sewing on the skin where he had ripped. And old Arizona whispered, well, oh boy, I guess he whipped. I told him I was busted from sombrero down to heel. He sort of grinned and said, you ought to see that gold iron wheel. Gold iron wheel. Now I have to loosen my collar. I'm not sure where we are as far as the scheme of things. I will step up there. First, we'll find I, out. I, I think we all need to uh, meditate for a moment on the most poetic description we've ever had of Golden Beer Talks. Beer being the object of our affections. <laughs> oh, it's really lovely. Most people are not so kind to us. <laughs> in that spirit we'll take a little break for a little more beer I want to mention really quickly though while we're on this cowboy thing our beer ambassador spent his day at the stock show and he currently is a reigning reserve champion if you want to know more you can ask him about it. it's pretty awesome yeah so we'll come back up in a few minutes <laughs> thank you People will have questions for you. Hello. Time for questions. Question, 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 question. Question, question. Answer your questions. He says he has more songs if you need them. And um, when people ask a question, if you'll repeat the question so that it goes into the podcast. That would be awesome. Thank you.
I'm on cloud nine because I just met Barbara, who is a, re- a relative of Brewster Higley. <laughs> I've got files and files and files of information on Home on the Range, and you know, and, but I have very little information about Brewster Higley himself. And as I proudly said, I have been to his cabin, his cabin on on Beaver Creek, up in North Central Kansas. And I played that song there, you may be sure. But I understand there might be some questions. Why is Home on the Range such an interesting song? And why are there so many versions? And I guess, I guess that's it. It's, that the song is just so compelling to people. There are, like, there's the, the, the Admiral Byrd who did exploration in Antarctica. He, he wrote, he wrote a, a book about his, his uh, work down there and it's simply titled Alone. And what he would do is to, you know, to pass the time, had a phonograph and he would play Home on the Range on that phonograph until it finally froze up and it didn't work anymore, and then he would just sing the song to himself. People loved the song. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he, uh, he sort of mistakenly let it be known that he was fond of it, and this was when he was campaigning, you know, in 32, and people went nuts. They went crazy for that song. And, and he, he wasn't really all that fond of it. <laughs> he kind of got weary of it after a while. But after a while, it, it was that there was not a record, a cowboy song record or a cowboy song book that did not have that song in it. And what's going to happen? The year's 1932. There's a couple out of Arizona. And they say, we wrote this song. You are taking our intellectual property, and we are going to sue all these publishing companies collectively for $500,000. That's big money even today. And um, so what are these publishing houses going to do? You know, the big companies out in the East, they get a lawyer. (laughs) And they send him out in the West, and he does all the digging that he can, and he eventually learned, he, he, he got a letter from this lady who lived in Pennsylvania and her brother, Bob Swartz, had sent his folks the song that he had written back in 1885, which way, you know, is you know, way beyond the Arizona couple, and they quietly re- withdrew their lawsuit. But it's, you know, this is bringing up more interest, and then this, this lawyer, he kept digging, and then he eventually found the uh, Brewster Higley story and the Dan Kelly story. And so... Uh, you know, everybody loves a song. It's, it's. Uh, I don't know what's so endearing about it, but it, but it is. And there are, as I say, there are there are three different versions of it that I do. So, that's why. Yes. Um, how did you get interested in the cowboy history and cowboy music and start explaining? Well, when I was, when I was a kid, I 
did like all the other red-blooded kids. I'd play electric guitar and play with my buddies, and we'd play Creedence Clearwater Revival and Beatles. And, <laughs> and uh, it was, um, I got to know a fiddler, and I, I was fascinated that with the things that he could do, working with axes, he could build log cabins, and he could do carvings, but he also played fiddle. So he, he taught me to play fiddle, and much of his repertoire, though he didn't call it that, was Civil War tunes. And so that's, that's where it started. And then my father and my grandfather were just crazy about cowboys and cowboy culture, and, and then my dad loved Marty Robbins. <laughs> Marty would sing the good old songs, and so you know, I kind of grew up in it. Yes? Some of the music sounded a little bit like Ken Burns. Does he do accurate representation of the time periods? Yes. Well, yes. We're referring to Ken Burns and the PBS films that he has done, the epic work, you know, the one being the Civil War. And he's asked, is, is he true to the accuracy of these, of these, these old melodies? And it, yes, with one notable exception. And that is for the, the primary song that was played all through the Civil War series. It was Ashokan Farewell, which was, was written by Roy Unger in uh, like 1985. <laughs> and he wasn't really intending it to be, you know, used in this historic way. But he was, he was just, he had a camp in upstate New York. And he was just feeling, you know, kind of regretful that it was ending, you know, a couple of weeks and everybody's going to go away. And he wrote the Ashokan Farewell. And somehow Burns heard about that. And, and now these days I'll be at a Civil War camp and I'll have my fiddle and people will say, can you do that? That Civil War song, you know. And I'll play that. And, yeah. <laughs> but yes, in general... Yeah, he's very true to the to the old melodies. Yes. Yes, right. So I first met you at Bet's Old Fort, and I do believe uh, a couple of years ago when we were there it was June 1845 where we were. And could could you speak to, if you know, how some of the music evolved from like the Mexican War until like uh, 20th century, turn of the 20th century, like kind of He's asking how did the music evolve from the time of the U.S.-Mexican War, the mid-1800s up to the 20th century? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, one thing, the one thing I can say is at that time, the... Uh, even the you know even people that had a minimal education still had a really good grasp of the English language. Not only that, they had it was Latin was you know Latin phrases were pretty common knowledge, and so there was there was a pretty elegant language that was being applied at the time. And the other thing was sentimental ballads, you know, just grabbing at your heartstrings. That was the popular song of the day the um, there's a there's a song that Jack Thorpe wrote, Jack Thorpe is known best for being the first collector of cowboy songs 
but his first book was, it was Songs of the Cowboys, had 25 songs, five of which he had written himself. <laughs> and one of those was Little Joe the Wrangler, which he, which he uh, wrote in 1889. And that was hugely popular. And then he wrote a sequel to it, which was Little Joe's Sister Nell. And it's another tearjerker, but he didn't do that until like, you know, it's like a, it was in the 30s. And, you know, the people had, their tastes had changed. And where Little Joe, people still love Little Joe today, but, you know, they, it just wasn't the big hit that Little Joe was. Incidentally, he never got a dime for any of his, his works. He actually hired lawyers to try to help him to get some kind of pay for Little Joe the Wrangler because he wasn't a rich man. But he, he never got a dime for it. Did I answer that question? Tastes, you know, and sentimentality and very uh, rich language, elegant language. Yes? The harmonica. I, I like to tell people that uh, in the archives at Ben's Old Fort, they found a harmonica reed. And people will go, they think, wow, Ben's Fort was built in 1833, so the harmonica goes back that long. No. What happened was there was Ben's Old Fort, and then William Bent blew it up at the end of the U.S.-Mexican War, 1848. But people made use of it. And in like in the 1880s, it was a registered post office. And so there were stage stops there and over time. But the, uh, but the, uh, I'm kind of throwing you off there. But the, the harmonica was developed in Germany. And it was in the um, 1840s, it turns into what we know today as the diatonic instrument, blow and draw on different notes. And then Matthias Honer, he really mass produces that harmonica. And by the time the Civil War is happening, there are, the harmonica is a common thing to happen to be out here in this country. And it was very popular with the soldiers. There's a, there's a, when, the, when it's, it's, it's a bit apocryphal, but it was said that Abraham Lincoln was, was uh, doing a speech against his, his opponent, and his opponent had brought a band. And some of his friends were objecting to that, and Lincoln pulled out of his pocket and said, Harmonica does it for me. But the harmonica was very well established by the time of the U.S. Civil War. And it was shortly after that that Matthias Honer saw the dollar signs, and he had regular trade and distribution going from Germany to the U.S. So by the 1870s, boom, they're all over the place. Yes? So along that same vein, uh, what about drums and percussion and things like that that accompany the music? Well, the drum is arguably the most of the ancient instruments. Between the hollow bone flute and the drum, we don't go back any further than that. But, you know, the drums were used in the military. And so, in this country, those, those same drums were applied to popular music. The, there are, so you have these 
these tension drums. And then there are simply drums on a small hoop that are like a tambourine. In fact, they even called them tambourines, and I'm not sure they're exactly what we had today, but just hand drums were popular in this country. Just anything to keep time, keep the beat. But it's, I think it was primarily from the, the military drums that they came over into the popular music. Yes? In St. Louis. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, we're, there's two different things happening. The, uh, the uh, Museum of Western Expansion at St. Louis under the arch has been undergoing a great renovation. And uh, there is, I don't think it's been opened yet. And they will, they'll be redoing the entire museum and then they're doing a new film. And I appear in the film as a, as a fur trapper and also a dragoon soldier and playing fiddle and banjo. But yes, the, uh, you were referring to the bicentennial of the Santa Fe Trail when Becknell, William Becknell, discovers that Mexico has won its independence from Spain. And it was like he knew, he knew before it happened. And he had mules loaded and ready to go from independence down into Santa Fe. And that was 1821. Oh yeah, there's a lot being planned all along the Santa Fe Trail from Independence to Westport all the way down the trail to Santa Fe and yes, I will be involved in that. Excellent. Yeah, it's a big deal. <laughs> yes. The cowboy did not have so much in the way of tools. He would have some running irons for branding cattle. And, you know, he had his, his saddle, the bridle. But the rest of his tools were what he wore, and they were protection. So the, the hat, protection from the rain and the sun. The, uh, what they would wear on their legs, the, 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 the shaps. Chaparejos. It's come from. It comes from the Spanish word chaparejos, but it was the protection on the legs. There are the shorter guards that were called chinks, and those were derived from the Spanish chincaderos. The boots. The uh, these are roping cuffs, and so when you're roping that thousand-pound steer and you're taking your dallies around the horn, again derived from a Spanish word, darbeltas, taking your dallies around the horn you uh, can really scar up your, your arms with that rope. And so these are protection. Unfortunately, there was no protection for your fingers. And so many of the experienced cowboy would be lacking digits. Didn't play the banjo so much. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
in the in the time of Thomas Jefferson, they did not have the forte piano, but they had the piano forte, and so that would be, you know, it's a much smaller instrument, and then the spinet and the harpsichord. But then moving into later times, the uh, the forte piano has a metal soundboard, has always had that. Is it a rectangular instrument? Is it an upright or is yes, it? Upright. Okay. And that has a that has a metal soundboard, and so that's not something that's going to be on the trail. It's not going to be coming out west, but it's remarkable how many did anyway. And so in into these towns where we let's say the 1870s, just after the Civil War, mining is is uh, doing pretty well, and we have families that have some means and substance, and so it's expected that their children are going to have a good education, and part of that is music. And so there would be some sort of instrument, often would be the piano in the parlor, and you know, they're, particularly the daughters are getting a good education. They would become proficient in some sort of music. It's also surprising that the banjo was frequently the choice of these young ladies for playing in the parlor, which is not something you would think of today, but they're playing the, the classical pieces of the day on those, on those old banjos. And then the guitar. Today you see smaller guitars advertised, you know, the small body, and they're called a parlor guitar, and people just say, yeah, parlor guitar. It was, it's modeled after the instruments that were played in the later 1800s, and they're much smaller than the big guitars that we have today. Well, if, if you uh, if you like, I could regale you with a poem and a song. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, you've already eaten. <laughs> there's a there's a there was a a poet. He wasn't a collector. He was just a writer. I mean, just. His name was Charles Badger Clark, and. He, he lived with his family up in Rapid City and Hot Springs, and he ended up down in Arizona, being working on a ranch in Tombstone, Arizona. And he was sent down there because he was suffering from consumption, tuberculosis. And it was suggested that it might prolong his life to move down to the desert. And not only did he survive down there, he thrived in the beauty of the desert, and he wrote poetry. And eventually he published a book of this poetry titled Sun and Saddle Leather in 1915. And in 2015, some friends and I, we met up, at, up in uh, Custer, South Dakota, at the Custer State Park. And that was where Badger's home was in the latter part of his life. And it's now on the property of the state park. And so we had a celebration. And so in this fall... It's nineteen. It's twenty seventeen. That was the public publication date of his Grass Grown Trails, his second book in nineteen seventeen. So we had another big celebration up there. So a lot of you know of all the cowboy poets, he is the he is the greatest to me. But I'm, this one I'm going to tell you is just pretty mundane. The cowboys they would be laying in their bedrolls. Old Koozie would bang his skillets together. Get up or I'll feed it to the hungry coyotes. And you get up on your feet and you get some coffee and you, and you, uh, you, you know, get some biscuits maybe, some beans, 
and you eat all you can, and then you're in the saddle all day, and it's, you're not going to eat again until it's dark, and you're going back to camp. So by that time, they start to feel a little hungry, and they would start to think about food, and Badger was inspired to do this simple poem titled, Bacon. <clears throat> It's water, I swear. (laughs) Bacon. You're salty and greasy and smoky as sin, but of all grub, we love you the best. You stuck to us closer than nighest of kin and helped us to win out the West. You froze with us up on Laramie Trail. You sweat with us down in Tucson. When engine was painted and white man was pale, you nerved us to grip our last chance by the tail, load up our colts, and hang on. You sizzled by mountain and mesa and plain over campfires of sagebrush and oak, the breezes that from the plat to the main carry your savory smoke. You're friendly to miner or puncher or priest. You're as good in December as May. You always came in when the fresh meat had ceased and the rough course of empire to westward was greased by the bacon we fried on the way. We've said that you weren't fit for coyotes to eat and your virtues we often forget. We've called you by names that a darson repeat, but we love you and swear by you yet. Here's to you, old bacon, fat, lean, streak, and rind, all the Westerners join in the toast. From mesquite and yucca to sagebrush and pine, from Canada down to the Mexican line, from Omaha out to the coast, bacon. Now, I do one Badger Clark poem that never fails to make small children cry. (laughs) It's about a rough, rough and tumble Ronk Buster. But this is uh, this is one by Jack Thorpe, and this he he put this in his second publication, which was also called Songs of the Cowboys, but it was published in 1921. His first was published by himself, but this second one was published by Houghton Mifflin, and it had 101 songs, 25 of which he had written by himself. And this is one. It was called. He's, he's talking about the lowly bean, the friholy bean. And it was just as a poem, and I really liked it, and I wanted to put it to music. And so I was thinking of what other, what other songs were popular at that time that were a big hit with the Cowboys, that he might take that and make a song out of it. And the Cowboys loved Casey Jones. They, they loved that song. And it was from about the same time, 1910. And so I found that that fits pretty close, more or less. So this is Free Holy Beans's to the tune of Casey Jones, sort of. Cooked you in strongest gypsum water, boiled you up in water made of snow, eaten you above the Arctic Circle, and chewed on you in southern Mexico. In a campfire on a stove or in the oven Buried in the ashes overnight I saved my life on one Then one occasional holy bean Simple out of sight Of course you know As far as one's digestion is concerned You'd ever break a plum in two Without a single moment's hesitation At least that's the reputation given you So here's to your health your little brown for holy, your health I pledge and by you always stand. You're eaten by the rich and by the lowly, you're an outlaw product of a western land.
is such a savor, such a muchness, such a taste that you have got a particularly satisfying flavor when you add sour and chili to the pot. Then goodbye, my little part. I hate to leave you. You've been with me on many a long hike. I'll eat the rest of you that's in the skillet, then saddle up a buck and hit the pike. Sure, thank you for inviting me to come. Thank you for coming to come and see me. And I'm usually accustomed to playing for hours and hours, but I reckon you're all. I got more songs if you want. Many thanks to all of you. We'll be back next month with an expert on lasers and photovoltaic cells. Hope we see you then.